You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Before I begin, well done in all those names. That may, may have been intentional. That Haman would have named his sons Joe or Matt. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, kids, we got the kids' sermon notes, so you can grab this. If you fill this out to my right, to your left, I got a treat for you, if it's okay with your parents. Uh, so fill that out, give it to me up. All, we also have the kids' bags that are located, located in the hallway, so if that serves you, grab that as well. All right, today's sermon is the last in our sermon series going through the book of Esther. Uh, There are ten chapters. We got to the last one. Uh, Because of how the story of Esther is written, I'm picking up the pace, as you could tell from last week, and you obviously could tell from this week. So I'm tackling three chapters at a time. If you're looking forward to slowing down, good news for you. Sermon on the Mount's coming up. And we'll be taking it one verse at a time and in, in many places in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're unfamiliar with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we'll be going through uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the most famous sermon ever preached, in my opinion. It's Jesus, so it's a, I'm going to stand by that opinion. And uh, I hope that's going to bless you. Uh, that'll either start next week or the week after. i still got to map a few more things out. As it pertains to this sermon series, I hope you have seen like, how the mighty hand of God has been at work. Like, I was thinking about this during worship. Like, Esther is a, a picture. The story is like painting a picture of God's plan of redemption. And, that's, and have we not seen that over and over throughout the book of Esther? And we have seen in Esther how God uses flawed men and women to accomplish his good purposes. I mean, I've said that several times, and I think that resonates with many of you. It resonates with me. He uses flawed men and women to accomplish his good purposes, and in particular, his good purposes are the rescue and redemption of his people. Isn't that humbling, though? Like, before we really get into these particular chapters, isn't that humbling that God uses flawed men and women? I'm, going to, I'm just saying it one more time because as we kind of flip the page and go into a new sermon series, I'm not going to get to say that as much anymore, right? The content kind of changes when you get to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to remind you, God uses you, however flawed you might be. And it's a joy to be used by God for his good purposes. So let me pray. Because I, because I am a flawed man, <laughs> I need God's help uh, to faithfully preach his word. So I'm just going to brief, briefly pray and then get into this final sermon on the book of Esther. Heavenly Father, I admit my dependence upon you, and I need help from the Holy Spirit to preach well, clearly, and faithfully. And I do pray for this entire church and everyone in this room. I pray that you'd instruct their minds and their hearts. I I pray more than anything that these faithful folks in front of me would hear from you this morning, from you the Almighty God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the God who rescues and redeems his people. I pray they hear from you. And I pray this in the only name we can pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The final chapters of the book of Esther is good news. It's real good news. Yes, a lot is going on, and I'm going to have to explain natural questions that that arise when we read about over 75,000 people dying at the hands of God's people. I'm going to have to explain that. But make no mistake about it, these chapters are the good news of the gospel. Man, i got so many rabbit trails that go through my head right now. The Old Testament is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you that a little bit this morning, but I'm just going to tell you up front. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It's about the gospel. So what do I, what do I mean? Esther gives us a taste of what it means for a people to have their backs against the wall, right? I think we can all say the people of God's backs were up against the wall and they were delivered. That's where we're at today. We see the deliverance fully come through. Before knowing Christ, your back was up against the wall. Worse, you were hell-bound. You needed someone to deliver you from the clutches of hell, right? You were a child of wrath, but God, now you are a child of God. The people of God and Esther were on the brink of annihilation. If there is a hell on earth, they were about to experience it. These final chapters in Esther teach us that only those who know that they stood at the mouth of hell, will fully appreciate the joy of rescue, the joy of rescue that we now have in Jesus Christ. When you're in that place where you feel like it's all going against you, when you know the bad news, can you truly understand the good news of deliverance and redemption? Let's not be ambivalent about the bad news. Let's be very clear. It was, it was going pretty bad for the people of God in the book of Esther, and they knew it. After a seemingly hopeless start to the book of Esther, we are now beginning to see, as we saw last week, many dramatic reversals for the people of God. Throughout the entire book, we've seen how God's providential hand has been at work to bring about redemption and restoration. So how did we get here, right? How did we get to this point, beginning in chapter 8 of Esther? If you're looking for a helpful tip for reading your Bible and the book of Esther, I'm going to break down Esther into five episodes that have led us to chapter 8. Here's episode 1. As a reminder, episode 1 includes chapters 1 and 2. The book of Esther, remember, opens up with a banquet. King Eshuerus loves to party, and we get a sense of that right away. And if you follow, want to follow the storyline in the book of Esther, just follow the feasts, follow the parties. And at the second party, the king calls for his queen, Queen Vashti, and Vashti is like, no, nah, I'm not going. I'm not going to be shown off to all your friends. King Eshuerus didn't like that, right? right? And so he's like, get rid of Queen Vashti. Kind of gives you an insight into the character of King Asuerus, right? But in God's providence, what happened? 
The removal of Vashti was an opportunity for Esther to become queen, an orphan girl. Talk about bitter providence of God. She didn't even know her parents. And yet, she's queen. It's like a movie script, except it's not. It's God at work. And it happens that at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai, cousin of Esther, overhears a plot to kill the king, and he reports the incident, and his righteous act would serve him later. So that's episode 1. Episode 2 is chapter 3. As the story progresses, the villain is revealed. His name is Haman. Remember last week, you can boo when you hear the word Haman. All right, thank you. Haman hates the people of God, and he wants them all wiped off the face of the earth. Well, Haman also ends up being the king's right-hand man, which means Haman has the authority to inflict pain upon the people of God. So Haman hatches a plan to ensure all the Jews are murdered. Haman's anger toward the people of God boils down to this, to this one incident of Mordecai, the Jew, not bowing to Haman. That's what set him off. Just, just one dude wouldn't bow to him. And all of a sudden, Haman's he's upset, to say the least. And so a royal edict goes out to the entire Persian kingdom. It's a large kingdom. And chapter 3 ends with, it, with this ominous line. And I quote, And the king and Haman sat down to drink. The edict went out, so they just sat down, lounged around. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What a contrast, right? What a contrast. The next episode, it's Esther 4. Episode 3 is chapter 4. Of course, Mordecai hears about the plot to murder the Jews, and he pleads with Esther, right? Esther's, Esther's queen. Mordecai hears about the plot, so he's like, Esther, you have to do something. He pleads with her to intervene on behalf of her people. She agrees, but only after Mordecai says this to her. And it's, like I said, the money line of the entire book of Esther because it's the money line because of its theological depth. Here's the money line. This is Mordecai speaking to Esther. Do not think for yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. In other words, they're going to be coming for you, Queen Esther, unless you intervene. You can't hide in the palace. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So if you want to be quiet, Esther, cool, God is still going to take care of us. However, Esther, you have an opportunity to do something. And the money line is here. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's like, Esther, don't you see the providence of God here? I'm just clapping to keep you awake. Don't you see the providence of God here? Queen Esther has been chosen by God for such a time as this, and she responds to Mordecai with these really, I call them like precious words, meaningful words, but words of sacrifice, self-sacrifice. If I die trying to help my people, then so be it. It takes a lot of courage to walk into that situation knowing that you could die because you're breaking a Persian law. Episode 4, our chapters 5 through 7, that was last week. 
Chapters 5 through 7 show us Esther and Mordecai's like counterplot to bring down Haman. So we have the initial plot or edict. Then we kind of got a counter edict or counterplot. It's like, what are we going to do? Uh, there are more banquets in this episode. And in these banquets, we see, again, the providential hand of God over and over. Chapters 5 through 7 show us many wonderful and great reversals because of the providence of God. In chapter 6, we see the most dramatic reversal in the book of Esther. We read about Haman leading Mordecai around the city like a noble because of his righteous act to save the king. When we're finished with Esther 7, we read Haman is hanged for his wicked plot. But here is a critical point about Esther and Mordecai. By the time we're done with chapter 7 in the book of Esther, we begin to see the effects of faith working in and through Mordecai and Esther. Again, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but he is certainly there. We see it in these two characters. In the righteous acts of Mordecai, we're meant to know the righteousness of Christ, for example. When Esther mediates on behalf of the people of God to the king, right? You got the king, got the people of God. Esther's in the middle, mediating for her people. When we see that, we're meant to remember Jesus Christ, our great mediator. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon series that as this story has unfolded, we see the shape of Christ in our characters. Not only his redemptive plan, but we see God working in them. Now, here's a quick tip for reading the Old Testament. I got onto this gravy train earlier. I'm just going to mention it real quick. Always be on the lookout for signposts that point to Christ. The entire scope of redemptive history points to Jesus. Esther and Mordecai are no exception. Now, on to the final episode of our story, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Haman's dead, right? That was last week. Haman's dead. But the people of God are not out of the woods. Like, we all maybe felt a little relief. Okay, that dude's gone. But no. When Haman enacted this royal edict to wipe out all the Jews... And he had the king's seal, right? The signet ring. A law was created. That's what happened. In Persian law, when a law is made, it cannot be overturned. The king has to save face. It's essentially, the king is like, I can't go back on my word. As a reminder, here is the edict from chapter 3. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, all this was going to happen in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So even though Haman is dead, his voice rises from the grave. Perhaps there's something we can learn from the life of life and death of Haman, actually. It's hard to be like, how can we learn anything from that guy? And I'm going to make an attempt here. I am tempted to talk about how the people we elect can impact our lives after their death. That's one way you can think of it, but let's get a little closer to home. The decisions you do or do not make will impact others after you die. Like, Haman's dead, but he's still making an impact the question you can ask yourself is, 
What are you doing now to make an impact on the people you will leave behind? Haman's legacy was not cool, to say the least. However, you have the opportunity to leave a godly legacy. Obviously, don't be like Haman. But you can leave a godly legacy. If you're the type of person who skips ahead and reads the end of the book, my wife and my oldest do that all the time. drives me nuts. I'm one of those. You read straight through. Don't tell me the ending. But if you're, if you're that type, um, you know God rescues his people from Haman's edict. The providence of God is to save is so memorable and meaningful that a holiday was created, right? You get to the end of the book and like we got a holiday all of a sudden. The holiday is called Purim. Some people say Purim, Purim, Pur, however you want to say it. I'm going to say Purim. And I'm going to use this feast, Purim, to explain chapters 8 to 10. I mean, I'm going to break it down into three specific questions. Like, what is Purim, right? Put them up there for you. So what is it? How did Purim become a holiday? That's really going to get us into the details of these chapters. And why is Purim still celebrated? These questions will help us close out this book. So first question, what is Purim? Today, Purim is a combination of like Halloween, Mardi Gras, and Easter. Like all mashed up together. It's a joyous holiday where Jews dress up in costumes, eat good food, and they retell the story of Esther. It's like on that, during that holiday where everyone gathers in the synagogue and the story of Esther is repeated. And as I said last year, or last week, excuse me, when Esther is read out loud in the synagogue, the congregation heckles every time Haman is mentioned. As we see, Purim is a Jewish festival commemorating the deliverance of the Jews in Persia from Haman's plot against them. There is a collection of books that are, that are not in the Bible, but kind of still talk about history. And it, we read this in 2 Maccabees. Um, it was basically a recording of Jewish history. And it says this about the Feast of Purim. And they all decreed by public vote never to let this day go unobserved, but to celebrate the 13th day of the 12th month, which is called Adar in the Aramic language, the day before Mordecai's day. So Purim is actually a big deal for Jews. And here's why the holiday is called Purim. We go back to Esther 3.7. We read this. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ashuerus, they cast Pur. That is, they cast lots. Basically a game of chance. Before Haman, day after day. And they cast it after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So what's going on here? The name comes from a game of chance that Haman played to determine when the people of God were going to be murdered and annihilated. Now, at first blush, this seems like a a twisted way to commemorate the deliverance of God's people, right? Like, why couldn't they pick another name? Like, when we think about the Passover, when we go back to Exodus, that makes sense because God passed over the homes of the Jews and ultimately redeemed them and rescued them out of the clutches of the Egyptians. Passover makes sense. So why Purim? Well, the purpose of commemorating the day with the word Purim is to remember that it was God who providentially delivered the people of God. It was a game of chance for Haman. 
but God was sovereign over the outcome. What do we read in Proverbs 16? I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It's worth repeating. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And now is an excellent time to remind you that even though the name of God, like I said, is not mentioned in Esther, God was at work every step of the way, and Mordecai and Esther knew it. Mordecai and Esther knew that their survival was 100% dependent upon the providential hand of God and not on a game of chance. How does that reality inform your life? Here's a question I'm going to float and answer at the end of my message. And I'm sure you've picked up by now that I believe the entire Bible is about God's plan of redemption. I don't read, teach, or promote the view that the Old Testament is about the Jews and the New Testament is like about Christians. I don't divide the books. But the Testaments, all 66 books of the Bible, tell us one great story. If I'm correct, if I'm correct in my assessment, how I read the Bible and how I preach the Bible, I'm asking this question. Should we celebrate Purim? Just floating it out there. Should we, should we like take up the holiday? Like, let's just put it into the arsenal. We got Christmas. We got Easter. Purim. We could dress up again. We could eat some more food, have some presents. Let's do it. Who's coming with me? Nobody? I mean, really, though, should we celebrate it? I'm going to table the question and answer it at the end. For now, let the question percolate in the back of your mind. So that's Purim. What is Purim? Answer that question. Next question. How did Purim become a holiday? We know what Purim is, but how did Purim become so meaningful? The question leads us to chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8 opens with King Ashuerus giving Esther and then Mordecai the house of Haman, which means Mordecai was given all of Haman's stuff. That's what it means to give the house of Haman to him. But he doesn't care. He knows something needs to be done about Haman's legacy as represented in his edict. So, Mordecai, or excuse me, Esther, falls at the feet of the king. She weeps and pleads with the king. I mean, remember, we have this massive spiritual awakening going on with Esther. Her faith seemed to be dormant for years. But now she falls at the feet of the, queen, of the king and weeps. We could sum up the actions of the queen with these words. Esther says in chapter 8, for how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? My people, she says. How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? I mean, she, Esther's no longer hiding the ball. She's not holding back. And I've been thinking about this point, because this has come up several times in the book of Esther. I don't know what your relationship with God has been like historically in the last year, six years, ten years. But what I do see with Esther is, is always an opportunity to dial back in. Like, you know what? I'm going to rise up. I'm going to cultivate that relationship with the Lord. And we see that here. With, I mean, her backup was against a wall, but in, in her bitter providence, she was moving in and leaning in toward God. Again, in these words, we see Esther owning her faith, finally, and her role as a mediator between the king and her people. The threat against the people of God has not been neutralized. 
The legacy of Haman is still a threat. Action needs to be taken. So she falls to his feet and weeps. Now, I would imagine that at this time, there would have been a lot of tension in the people of God, right? They're, they're thrilled that Haman's dead, but there's still problems on the horizon, at least seemingly. But the tension is always the reality for God's people. The tension is always the reality. I would think that a Christian living in a country hostile to Christianity would really understand what's going on in the book of Esther, right? Living day to day, wondering if they're going to survive. But the tension does remind us that as we live in weakness, we eagerly wait for the final rescue. There will be a day when the Feast of Perim will become a footnote in history. And that day is when Jesus will complete his plan of redemption. But until that day, we live in tension by God's grace. As the story moves forward, King Ashuerus tells Esther and Mordecai, just do what you got to do. Just do what you got to do. Once again, King Ashuerus is all about delegating decisions. As I've pointed out, he's never made a decision in the book of Esther. So a counter edict was written with the king's authority. If Haman's edict can't be overturned, then at least allow the Jews to defend themselves against the attacks. In Esther 8.11, we read about the substance of this new royal edict. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. These are the best horses here. Saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed fort. Any armed fort. It's a very specific edict here, and that's important to realize when we talk about all the violence. So force any person of the province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. So there's several questions we need to ask from this passage. First, there's a translation question, actually, and then we need to be honest about war. How did Purim become a holiday? Well, a lot of people died. Like, what do we want to talk about reality? A lot of people died. Does the decree to authorize the people of God to kill men who attack them and also the women and children of those attackers? Like, yeah. As commentator Christopher Ash notes, there's one way of viewing this that makes it really easy for us to accept what's going on. And there's another way to translate this where it's just stark reality, like your ESV. If you have that, it's probably more accurate to understand what's going on here and what the decree is actually saying. When, we, when it comes to war and talking about war in the Bible, sometimes we just can't stomach it. But actually, we have to face it. We have to understand what is going on and why. So with this translation question out of the way, and I think the edict is pretty straightforward, we see that the Jews were authorized to kill the families of their attackers and to remove the threat forever. Remember what we're dealing with here. It's not just Haman versus the Jews. It's an entire ethnic group that hates God's people. They the hatred goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. So perspective is critical when we wrestle with the killing of people. Like, we don't like it, but it's there. You know, I was just thinking, like, headline news, right? Turn on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, pick your news du jour. What do you see right now in the news? An entire country that's about to invade another country. Do you think people will not get killed? The people 
are authorized to defend themselves. That's actually what we see in this edict. They are not to be the aggressors. Now, do I think every Jew was like on the up and up? Uh, the doctrine of like total depravity, we're all sinners, tells me no. For some, the hate went the other way, of course. But as far as the edict goes, God's people were not to kill their enemies indiscriminately, but only the groups who attacked them. So again, let's continue to be honest about this part of the story by stepping back for a moment. The Bible is full of violence. One reason I am persuaded by the authenticity of Holy Scripture is that it is raw and it is honest. We see how the events in the Bible are not much different from what we experience in everyday life. Yes, the culture is different. The location is different. The reason for conflict may have changed. But human nature remains consistent. Like in Genesis 4, what's the first act that we see after sin enters the world? We see Cain killing his brother Abel. Man, I mean, the return of Christ is also marked by violence. Like, go to Revelation 19. I, I'm going to read this in length to help us give us perspective. Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That is our Lord. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He judges and makes war. First, first sermon of this series, one of the things I pointed out is that there is a battle between good and evil. We have to settle that in our minds, in our hearts, if we're really going to understand what is going on, not only in Esther, but also here in Revelation. He makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has, has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dripped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Like I'm, I'm guessing you see what's going on here. I'm just trying to be honest. Like so much preaching is about roses and Love and da da da. I'm trying to be honest about what we see, not only in the world, but what we see in Holy Scripture. Go to verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth filled their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, all the fallen prophets. I could continue on and on and on and on. Regardless of how you interpret the book of Revelation, you must admit that we read about a war between two sides, a war between good and evil. And we should not apologize or attempt to explain away the violence we read about in the Bible, including what we read in Esther. I'm not going to explain it away or not approach it. We have to deal with it. In Esther 9, we read that at least 75,810 people died at the hands of the people of God. 75,810. 75,000 were outside the city of Susa, 800 within the city. Ten of those were the sons of Haman. The number of people who died does not, does suggest, excuse me, the great animosity against the people of God. Haman was the face of evil, but there were also many other Hamans living in Persian society. Again, the counter-edict was for self-defense against a coordinated attack 
against the Jews. Now, I don't want to skirt past the violence. I think you've seen that. But if you obsess over the violence, you actually miss the more incredible point of Esther. God has called people to himself. It is through God's people in which the nations were to be blessed. However, not all nations and tribes care for the people of God. Not all nations want to be blessed by God, right? The Amalekites were one of those ethnic people. They tried to get in the way of God's plan of redemption, but God did not have it, right? Any attempt to get in the way of God's plan is futile. God's purpose and plan will go forth. The train of redemption is moving forward in the book of Esther. It's moving full steam ahead, and it's best to get on board instead of standing in the way. The descendants of the Amalekites, as we've talked about in the past, stood in the way, but we read that some Persians actually got on board. Look at the last verse of chapter 8. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the people of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. So we have, we see the violence, but we also see the joy of what's going on. One hopes that many trusted in the God of the Bible because of a holy fear. Like they, they've heard the stories the God of the Jews, we've heard of what he's done. And now, now they're seeing it in real life. God draws his, what I say, elect sheep in many different ways. At a, at a minimum, we see in this passage the effect God is having on the wider populace. Gentiles, non-ethnic Jews, are invited into God's family several generations before the birth of Christ. The people of God were hopeless, but God provided a path of redemption. There are a few more factors about how Purim became a holiday. First, it's clear that the counter-edict resulted in the people of God receiving help. After Mordecai's reputation was growing into mythic status, we read in chapter 9, all the officials of the province and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents who helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. This makes sense when considering that Haman's edict caused the city to be confused, Esther 3. The average per Persian didn't want their friends murdered. They would rather help them survive than be part of the problem. The other pertinent point about this counter-edict and the subsequent self-defense is the plunder that never took place. I think this is a really important point in understanding what's going on in Esther and why Purim is still celebrated. The edict said that the people of God could defend themselves and then take all the possessions of their enemies. That's what it means to plunder. It's like, I'm going to take you down and I'm going to take your goods. But we're told three times in Esther 9, they laid no hands on the plunder, verse 10, 15, and 16. I mean, this is a sneaky, essential point. I've, I've referenced 1 Samuel 15 in a previous sermon. I need to mention it again. In 1 Samuel 15, we read how God rejects Saul as king. Why? Because God told Saul, hey, I need you to kill King Agog, and don't take any of their stuff. I want you to burn it all, right? But what did Saul do? He did the opposite. He did the opposite. 
And when Saul is confronted by Samuel, he gives some lame excuse. Well, fast forward to Esther 9 and the people of God, they are very aware of 1 Samuel 15. And they're not going to make the same mistake. There was no command in Esther 8 and 9 to, to, to not take the plunder. If anything, the edict was giving them permission to do it. But the people of God knew their history. The people of God knew about the Amalekites. They knew their history, and they will not make the same mistake as Saul. Like, I just paused for a moment. Like, do I know my history as well as they did? When I read my Bible? Like when God leads people out of Egypt, do I see myself and realize and being thankful for that? In this situation, the restraint of God's people tells us something about their priorities, right? We could assume that wealth and goods were like at their finger, fingerprints. Like, I could become a millionaire. I just take their stuff. I'm going to kill them and I'm going to take their stuff. They could increase their material status like in a matter of moments. But they refused the plunder. And their refusal to plunder brought honor to God. It brought honor to God. The people of God did not look for war, but when it came to their front door, they fought back. And when the dust settled, they looked up to God instead of looking out at the potential to increase their wealth. Is, that, is there not an, an, an interesting and very good lesson for us? How did Purim become a holiday? God's providential hand protected God's people and the people ensured they would never forget the work of God. Here's our final question about Purim. Why is Purim still celebrated and should we be celebrating Purim? I, I'm always looking for another holiday and a day off. Let me answer the first question. If you read the Old Testament, you realize there's a lot to celebrate. There's a ton to celebrate. God is constantly going to bat for his chosen people. However, if we commit a day every time God has been faithful, we're going to run out of days pretty quickly, right? So why continue to celebrate Purim in particular? Now, Jews celebrate Purim because it highlights a central theme of the Bible. God delivers his people. God delivered his people out of Egypt, and he delivered his people from destruction in the book of Esther. Purim is celebrated, not because of any single man or woman, but because of what God has done. So think of it like this. If your life was on the brink of discussion, and another person rescued you, I'm sure that A, you would never forget, or one, you would never forget, and two, you'll never forget to be thankful. Purim is a celebration of thankfulness. We should be thankful. Now back to my teaser question. Should Christians celebrate Purim? I'll answer the question by making several Christological connections. Connections to Christ. I've already pointed out that in the righteous Mordecai, we can see the righteousness of Christ. In Esther, the mediator, we are pointed to a greater mediator, Jesus but we've got to remember, this is all about God and God's redemptive plan. But now we see in Christ a greater redemption. In Ephesians 1, we read this. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, and because of him, 
you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So the book of Esther is about God's plan of redemption. There's a story about, a beautiful story of God's plan of redemption pointed to the place and the moment and the person where the greatest act of redemption ever took place. Jesus Christ dying on a cross for the sins of his people to offer forgiveness and to grant eternal life. As we close out the book of Esther, you can ask yourself this question. What is more meaningful to you? Does your spiritual redemption because of Christ inform the physical redemption you long for in this world? If Jesus can save you from hell and eternal separation from God, then certainly he will keep his promise to return and complete the task he started, the redemption of all things. So any celebration of Purim begins and ends with celebrating Jesus. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.